All right. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the perspectives of the uh, welcome to perspectives of change show. Perspective matters when it comes to nudging change forward, and our perspective as change agents is just one of many. I'm Sadika Karbanda, your host uh, at Perspectives of Change, and we are dedicated to exploring how to nudge change forward by understanding and valuing multiple perspectives. Uh, today. On the show, we have a special guest with us, uh, Jason Little, dialing in from Toronto. Hey, Jason. Hello. So I'm going to briefly introduce Jason before we get his uh, topic uh, uh, you know, into discussion. And I might not really do a lot of justice to uh, your introduction, Jason, but um, if I miss something, just add to it. Okay, Sounds so good. yeah. So um, as I remember, uh, Jason's uh, used to be a developer. I'm sure he is today too, but he's a developer turned project manager, manager, consultant, and a lot of other roles that he's played. Uh, after which I think he ended up authoring this amazing book called Lean Change Management, which I think is like a must read for pretty much everyone in uh, change, change transformations. Um, he's passionate about the people side of change and believes that the best way to improve organizations is to really focus on behaviors and relationships that are built on trust. And as I understand, you do have a desire to change the world one person at a time. Did I miss anything? No, that's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it took me time to memorize some things. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. So today, Jason's topic, uh, what, what Jason would like to talk about uh, is aligned with uh, uh, the book that I just uh, shared. It's on lean change management. And we bring the topic lean, lessons in lean change management after six years, 300 workshop and 5000 plus attendees. Um, enormous. Um, but before we dive into the trends, the experience, the lessons, the learning, Jason, I think it would be great to understand for most of our audience too, uh, what is lean change management and what's with the lean in change management? Yes, I get that question a lot. Um, the, the word, much like agile, the word lean has lots of baggage associated to it. So some people will immediately go to lean Six Sigma, some will go to lean manufacturing, some will go to lean software development, uh, or, you know, lean systems methodology and all these types of things. Um, for me, the lean meant more the dictionary definition, as in as, as thin and lightweight as possible. So, uh, you know, if you Google change management frameworks, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them out there. And they're just these massive things that try to encompass every uh, potential scenario that you'll run into with a process you should do for this and a mitigation strategy for that and all these steps to follow. Um, and they seem to put people's attention on following the process mm -hmm. and forgetting why they're there as change people in the first place. So the lean is, if, there is an, if there's something that you're doing as a change agent that's not adding value, get rid of it. So it's very much aligned with um, the, the YAGNI principle in Agile. So YAGNI means you ain't going to need it. And uh, software teams will will do that. Um, you know, don't over engineer your software if you have no validation that people are going to use some of these features. So don't over engineer your your change framework because you're just going to get stuck with not thinking about anything, and then you'll end up going through the motions of kind of following these activities, and um, 
you know, I've seen plenty of times where status report is green, the change worked, we spent all the money, um, we were done on time on budget, but nothing's really different. So if we get away from that kind of process, just looking at that process part and get rid of stuff that doesn't make sense, we're more likely to focus on the stuff that matters. So that's, that's what Lean stands for in change management. So I know we talk about that cycle that we have out there and we generally talk about uh, feedback-driven approaches. And as you and I both agree, uh, even if we as change agents go into an organization, we are always like, okay, we need to follow this step-by-step -step approach to lean, you know, to change. And that's how we're going to drive, whether you call it digital disruptions or uh, change transformation, or whether you call it an agile transformation, it's almost always a sequential approach to change. So how is it that lean change management uh, looks cyclical through that diagram? So maybe you want to give us more insights to that. Um, it's, it's hard to show a nonlinear messy process in, in any diagram. So I think even some of the step-based methods like Cotter's eight steps was, was never intended to be do step one first and finish it before you move on to step two. Um, but much like what we've seen happen with Waterfall, I, I don't think anybody read Winston Royce's article, which what Waterfall turned into was not anywhere near what his paper was about. Um, so we just, we misinterpret these things as, oh, I should create urgency first. Um, do you have urgency? Yes. Awesome. Let's go to the next step. It's just, it's not the way humans operate. We're, we're, we're messy. We're unpredictable. Uh, we're nonlinear creatures. So, you know, trying to de depict it as a, a rapid learning cycle. Um, there's, there's some things we need to know as change agents before we start any change. We need to understand the context we're working in. We need to understand what's been tried already. Um, do we have alignment around a shared purpose for what it is that we want to do? Uh, what's worked and hasn't worked in the past? What's the culture like? What market do we serve? So we need some insights. We need some information that uh, gives us the ability to come up with some options. Um, and the options are more um, learning how to think in your own context. So not, well, Everybody who's doing an Agile transformation creates an Agile COE. Therefore, we hire a VP of Agile, we create an Agile COE, we train everybody in the organization, we create a standardized rollout procedure, and we measure people against it. Um, that, that's an option, but that's one option. What's another option that we have? So let's try to, to not commit to an action now. Let's learn to think in our context and come up with uh, a variety of options. You know, Jerry Weinberg talked about the rule of threes. You have to have at least three options to actually have options. If you have one, you have nothing. If you have two, you have a choice. If you have three or more, now you have options. Um, and then the language I like to use is, well, what could we do given this context? And uh, another idea is to, to allow the crazy ideas to surface. So things that might sound crazy might not sound so crazy a couple of months from now. So let's leave those options on the table. Now that we have gathered enough information, we can make a more well-formed decision about the experiment to do. So now that we have a handful of options, which of these should we turn into experiments? And the experiments is kind of a loaded term too. It doesn't mean, hey, let's just try stuff and see what happens. 
Um, if you're moving printers, you don't really need to experiment. Just make a list of printers and move them and send an email out and tell people how to configure their new printer. That's, that, there's not a lot of uncertainty with that. So the more uncertainty you have, the more you need to experiment. And if we're trying to transform a system of people uh, to, to working in an agile way, there's a huge amount of uncertainty with that. So let's decide on how short should our experiments be? How much planning do we need to do these experiments? What is it that we're trying to do? Are we trying to get to an outcome or are we just trying to learn something to actually help us figure out what we should do next? So these conversations, from my experience, usually don't happen in, in change circles. It's usually people over here bring in change people to fix people down here. Mm -hmm. And we come up with everything and we come up with a nice plan and we try to steamroller the organization um, with this rollout plan. And then when we hit that inevitable wall of resistance, as it's called, then that's where we go, oh, well, I did my thing. It was those people that resisted it. So, you know, imagine that you're progressing through this loop hundreds of times a month. It's, it's rapid learning. So you learn in your context how to move your organization forward. Yeah, that's true. So that's really the feedback that you keep getting from the people while implementing these changes, trying out those small experiments and see what you get and put that back into what the current state is because the current state is changing all at the same time as you are implementing those experiments too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard. That's hard for our brains to get around because there's the, you know, you mentioned the current state, transition, future state. Uh, Kurt Lewin has the unfreeze change, refreeze, uh, William Bridges transitions is all about the, the middle part, um, you know, analyze, plan, execute, close out that type of linear thinking. It's, it's more like it's constantly looping through those all the time. You're never finished with analyzing current state because like, it, it's exactly like you said, you know, uh, next week your competitor may release something you had planned for three quarters down the road. Uh, do you just follow your plan? Probably not. You probably change it. So if we can learn to accept the reality of the world, the feedback loop approach works better, but it's still harder on our brains. I mean, I think anybody on the call who's doing change work, whether you're a project manager, change manager, agile coach, scrum master, you're always up here in your brain. You're always thinking, you're always analyzing, you're always observing, and it's just freaking exhausting sometimes. So our brains love the idea of, can I just coast on autopilot for a little while? And well, maybe not autopilot because Tesla's in a lot of trouble after the news yesterday, but um, <laughs> uh, can I just have a break? Can't we just follow the plan for once? I'm so tired of having to adjust and blah, 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 but it's always going to work in a wave. And if we can accept it, you know, I've gotten to the point in my career where Whatever happens is the only thing that could have happened in this construct. Now what we can do is change people is, re is respond to that. Mm -hmm. And if we get really good at that response, you know, um, that helps us move to this feedback driven approach. And of course the counter argument I get to that is, oh, well, that means you don't plan anymore. Well, of course not, that's stupid. Uh, nobody would undertake a multi-million dollar project with no planning. It just means don't do all of it right now and just get really good at learning how to adapt in your context. Right, true. So another question that I've had also from people and <clears throat> um, 
I think that will probably relate to all of the experience you've had in the past six years is that change management is anyways all about IT. So is lean change management also just specific to IT? Because it's almost always IT that talks of change and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's at least driven from there and then it gets impacting the rest of the ecosystem. So what's, what's your experience and perspective on change being driven from, from just IT or how is it? Um, At least in North America here, it's kind of compartmentalized. So when we say change management, we, we might mean, uh, change control with IT. So in regulated environments, there's an IT change management group that deals with risk and change and, and audit and all that other kind of stuff. So that's one dimension of it. The other is the organizational effectiveness or organizational change or organizational development people, which is usually another stack of hierarchy somewhere else in the organization. And they do things like business readiness, training coordination, uh, reorganizations, anything that is around helping the organization change. And sometimes there's a third group, which is all of the, the, I'll just call it the process improvement change stuff. And that might mean uh, an agile COE, a bunch of agile coaches, uh, you know, some organizations I've worked in, they have a lean process improvement team, an agile COE, a design thinking team, an innovation team, and another other type of process improvement team that help um, change processes in the organization. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's important when we use that word change management, what is it that we're talking about? Because there's overlap between all of them, but what area are we focusing on? So um, for example, one telecom I worked for, we were uh, doing a bunch of pilot agile projects. This is, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that. And um, the team that I was working with, we were building the activation software for cell phones. So when you walk into uh, any wireless store and you buy a phone and they activate your software and they put the features on your plan and stuff like that, it was that software. So there was a pretty huge business readiness component behind it. And um, I was, at the time I was filling in as a scrum master for the team. So I was uh, an agile coach working across multiple groups in this uh, organization. And uh, we invited all of those outside groups to our first sprint review. So the first thing that we did, which you could call it change communications was, um, we're trying this new process, this new agile process. Um, Here's the way it works. Here's, Here's how things used to work here's how we're working today. So we, every two weeks we do a showcase and we show you progress um, around what it is that we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And the corporate trainers kept coming back to the sprint reviews and nobody else did just the trainers did because they had to train thousands of people uh, across Canada on the new tool, which is partially an IT change management thing. Plus um, um, a business readiness and training type of thing. So we had those people basically not not become part of our scrum team, but invited them in every two weeks. And we actually helped them incrementally create their training documentation and all their business process changes. Instead of normally what would happen is teams would do their eight month long project, throw it over the wall. Those trainers would have to go figure it all out, document it. Team's not gonna remember what the heck they did with features and stuff, you know, three, four months ago. And then it would take them another six months to actually roll the software out. our eight month project, we went live day of, it was done, people were ready because we were aware of the enterprise behind you know, just the scrum team. 
Right, which which makes it sound like what we uh, talk of in lean change management, which is really all about co-creating it with the people impacted with the change. That's essentially what you just said. So yes. an, another question that comes up from a lot of people then is, so how can you really co-create change with pretty much everyone who's impacted in the organization, especially if it's organizational wide change? So what do we do? Aren't we then just going to co-create it with, let's say, small set of people? What do we do? That, that's the way it will end up working out. So if we abstract away, because you know, a lot of people, especially for that question, they think binary. They think, oh, we're an 80,000 person organization. I can't invite 80,000 people to one meeting. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, like, that's not, <laughs> can we think about this for a second? Number one, never in the history of any organization has 80,000 people all been affected by the same change in the same way at the same time. It's just not reality. So get the, we're a big, scary enterprise out of your brain. Um, at most, it'll be, you know, a few thousand. And out of that few thousand, maybe a couple of hundred are really highly affected by it. And out of that couple hundred, maybe 20 to 50 are, are the, the, like the first movers, the ones that are really going to do something about it. So when we start to think about that, we open the invitation to anybody. The, the invitation for co-creation is for anybody who wants to come in. And then the people that keep coming, those are the people who become your first and second order change people that will actually help start to virally spread this thing out. Um, the other argument against that is cost. Well, we can't afford to do this. Then we don't do the change is my stance. If we, um, if we don't make an investment at the start, uh, think of all the other changes that you've done in your organization over the last number of years. How many times do you get to the end of it and nothing's different? Mm. Uh, pretty much all the time. Great. Then let's try this different. So open space technology. Um, a lot of the times I use some of the agile design thinking language because people go, oh, we're going to do this open space or we're going to do this in an agile way. That would be pretty cool. And that gives you some credibility to, to sell the co-creation idea. Right. Uh, more often than not, I just do it. Uh, invite everybody who whose job has to change on a daily basis because of this get them in the room yeah and how does it then work with executives or you know anyone who's like titled leader manager and the like uh, how does it work with executives understanding at any <clears throat> given point in time that they probably want to try out lean change management. Uh, I'll tell you where this question stems from because I've been talking to a lot of senior execs and one common question is, so, okay, we, we get what this is. It's about, you know, innovation, innovative practices, everything else, feedback driven change versus sequential change and so on. But what's the moment that I as an exec will realize that, oh, you know what, this is the time that I've got to pull out this tool or technique and that's what I should apply or learn. Um, for me, it's learning to speak the language they speak. Um, the executive question, whether it's in agile or, or lean changes is, is always an interesting one because from my experience, they, they could care less what you're doing and how you're doing it. They, they're after outcomes and results. Um, so getting buy-in or permission to use it for me is like a, a question. It doesn't compute in my brain. It's, this is just what you do as a change person. It's kind of like, 
you know, if you're a developer on a team and you want to start using test-driven development, you don't go ask the CTO if it's okay. You just do it because that's your job. Mm-hmm. That your job is to provide kick-ass software. So do it. Um, and then benefits will happen after the fact. Um, so it's in the types of things that you do with executives. So for example, one bank that I was doing some work with, they every year they do this, uh, they, they have people come in from every department for 15 minutes and they say what their plan is for the year for how they're going to improve the PMO or uh, engineering or whatever it is. And um, we were asked to come in with, present what Agile Utopia is to the executives. So what's the plan for steamrolling Agile across the organization for the year? And I just said, well, I can't really, I would love to do that, but I, I don't, I can't right now because I don't know, I, I don't really understand why this is important to you guys. I don't understand why, other than everybody else is doing it in the organization, I, I don't really get what it is you want to get out of this. So I would rather do a session like this where we can kind of explore what's happened so far with the pilot teams, what's been their reaction to it, um, why is it important to this group, why is it important to you guys as leaders, and why would your people and customers care about this? So basically just kind of did a sneaky change canvas um, by shifting the conversation towards, can we talk more about the purpose first? And then for me, that's gathering insights. And then in that session, we had three options. I said, well, here's three things that I think we could do given what I've seen so far. So I did a facilitated exercise that actually made them pretty mad at the beginning because most of the groups come in with a PowerPoint and <laughs> it's in like this U-shaped boardroom and none of the executives are paying attention. They're just on their laptops, checking email and stuff like this to look up every once in a while. And I used really small sticky notes on the wall and made them get up. Oh, they were so mad. But the point was, um, if they're not invested in it, it's not going to happen. If no one on that executive team really cares about actually getting involved with doing this stuff, it's, it's not going to happen. But again, from my experience, they, they were pretty hard on executives sometimes, mm-hmm. right? It's pretty easy on the outside and say, Oh, this, you know, these C levels, they just don't get it. And then for me, the question is, well, how many fortune 500 companies have you run? Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Agile coach. <laughs> Do you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like to run a global organization? Uh, if you don't have empathy for them, it's very difficult to understand the pressure that they're under. So I will just use the, I, I'll switch to a facilitator stance mm. when working with them and try to be as brief, which I'm not doing here, brief and concise as possible <laughs> to help them figure out what it is that they want to do. Sure. Now that makes a lot of sense. So maybe, maybe it's a moment where it would be great to understand across, you know, the six years and 300 workshops and so many thousands of attendees that you've had any specific trends in terms of learning lessons that you can, you know, share, maybe it's industry wide or uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Let me, uh, Just have a couple of things I can show on the screen here. Oh, that's not the right one. Do, do, do. This one. That's great. There we go. So the interesting thing about a, a change course, um, the black text is describing what people wanted to get when they came into it, and the green text is what they got when they left. Uh-huh. Um, so when you talk about patterns, you know, all uh, people who are 
agile coaches, scrum masters, internal change managers, HR people, managers. I would say sometimes it'll be as high as director, but this is not a, you know, for, for VPs and C-levels. This is designed for people who are uh, in the trenches doing change work. So it didn't really matter what background they came from. didn't matter what country, size of organization. The patterns were all very similar. Is We understand that change happens when we take action, and there are a whole bunch of more lightweight things that we can do to help align people around change and, and move things forward one little bit at a time. So I think a lot of what we see in the change world is from the perspective of uh, externals. So it's, you know, we have to push change because I have a three month contract. Mm -hmm. Whereas real people in their organization have the luxury of time. So they can do small experiments and see how they work and adjust. So as externals, our job is to support them by doing that. Um, so visualization, for sure, is always uh, one of the top things that people get out of it. And that doesn't matter. Agile folks know this. They've been doing this forever. Uh, traditional change people tend to still, are still attached to documentation and tools and um, uh, not being transparent about the work that's getting done. Uh, and many of them, after they come here, they go and they see some of the stories. They're like, oh my God, I, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to put a Kanban board up in my boss's office. Um, I'm going to do change canvas with my stakeholders tomorrow. Uh, so they get, they move more into action mode um, and they see the value of applying some of these agile and lightweight practices to change. Mm -hmm. So I went around and collected, um, you know, a ton of change challenges. So every workshop starts with what's your change challenge. Uh, the virtual course does the same. Um, going into organizations and talking to them, what's the, what's the challenge that you have with change? And, it, and again, it doesn't matter, country, industry, size, the patterns are the same. You'll get subtleties uh, and differences, whereas, you know, for example, in the Nordics, there's something called the power distance index, and that's basically how we, were, how we follow the chain of command, and there's very strong social structures in place. In the Nordics, it's very, very low. Right. Um, you know, there's, uh, executives go meet their guests down in the lobby and bring them up. They don't have an admin do that. For example, it's a very low power distance index. If you get into, um, you know, Russia and China, for example, it's a stronger power distance index. So, so some of the co-creation things are not as well received. Uh, one of the facilitators uh, in Japan, we've chatted a bunch of times and he's said the same thing. It's the co-creation is hard when there's very strong social structures in place. So it slows the pace of everything, but the problems are the same. How can I get those people to do this? How can I convince management to do that? How can I get my teams to do that? So despite those, those social constructs, the challenges are universal. So after going through, I don't know, thousands of these things, it kind of, um, it, it filtered its way into five universals about change. Mm -hmm. um, I don't call them principles, but I'm sure somebody will at some point. I don't call any of the stuff I do a framework, but I have so many people saying, hey, look at this new framework. And I'm like, well, if you want to call it that, go for it. Um, 
I, I had tested the way Jason likes to work, but nobody would have bought that book. <laughs> 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 I, I had somebody uh, uh, challenge, uh, say that in a workshop once. They said, it's just a much, bunch of marketing BS. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I guess so, but you can't sell anything if it's just, I like working this way and I think it's better. Would you buy a book with that title? Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so these five universals are what change agents have said when they focus on one of these five, this is what moves change forward. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at the top, Cotter talks about urgency. Urgency is from my experience, the perspective of the organization. So it's urgent for us to do this because of the market or whatever. Um, our urgency is increasing revenue by 3%. Now, is that going to help a tester on a team work better? Probably not. So if we can shift the language towards cause and purpose, we're more likely to get people rallied around this change. Um, a lot of the times, especially in North America, I'm not sure how it is there, but uh, you know, communication plans is a is is a very strong thing. I did a session yesterday with a um, a North American change group and gave them a scenario, and almost universal it was create a better comms plan or a bigger comms plan. And that's just the attitude here. It's the change isn't working because we're not communicating it well. Um, but from my experience, it usually ends up being broadcasting. We're just pushing stuff out. So if we move away from that and move towards meaningful dialogue, we're more likely to gather the right insights that will lead to the best options. So lean coffee instead of sending out a newsletter, for yeah. example. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite topics is resistance. So we did everything right, but everybody else resisted. That's why it didn't work. If we all we can really do is manage our response to their response. Um, and actually, if you do have a lot of strong, active resistance as you perceive it, that, that's fantastic insights. That tells you not the right change, not the right time, something else is going on. But that's where you get curious, not furious. You have to go find out what's the source of this perceived resistance and have a conversation. Sometimes it's noise. Sometimes it's people who are influential just feel they've been excluded from the conversation and they have ideas about the change, um, but that's insights for us. So if we, we switch from how do we overcome resistance to how do we use it as a tool for learning, we're more likely to figure out what to do next. Um, this one's obvious. Uh, getting buy-in is, a, again, a very big North American thing. So people up here want to change, people here create a plan and they sell it upwards and then they have to sell it downwards. Uh, so we have to get buy-in before we can execute this change. And I, I always use this quote from uh, Jill Forbes from National Leasing. There's a good case study on the website. She says, the people who write the plan don't fight the plan. So build it with them instead of at them. Yeah. And then finally, uh, this other one is, is fairly obvious too. So instead of just executing tasks, um, move to experiments. And also know your context, right? You know, if you're moving printers, you don't really need to experiment. Um, if you are, you know, trying to shift a 2,000 person delivery organization to Agile, there's going to be a lot of experiments that you're going to have to run. 
So the, um, these five universals is basically how do you look at these five universals and find the right types of actions, experiments, and ideas within each one of them. So, you know, meaning, uh, Lego series plays a fantastic way to create meaningful dialogue. Lean coffee is a great way to, to do, uh, to, to create meaningful dialogue. So if we start to collect these practices in a mind map, and then we, we now can pick and choose. Let's not isolate ourselves to one particular approach for change. You could call this a meta framework, um, but basically uh, the learning, no matter where it went, was you know, describe the best change you've ever worked on, and it's always attention was given to these five universals in the right way at the right time. Um, and the last thing about that is they're balanced. So let's get out of the binary, do it this way or that way. It's more like an inclusive or, I think if I'm remembering my, my college programming uh, switch days. Um, sometimes we might have to sell a little bit, but if we default to co-creation, some of the selling goes away. You might feel like you're trying to sell something in a co-creation session, but you're actually, you know, if that's personally what your value system is, it will come through as co-creation. If your personal value system is, it's my way or the highway and I'm going to control it and you're going to do what I say, and masked under co-creation, people will see that a mile away. And then you'll end up in sell mode. And you'll, you might get a little benefit at the start, but people aren't going to care if they're not included. Um, so try to find the, the right balance. Um, I, I would say that's probably the biggest lesson was learn how to think in your own context by giving these five universals the attention they need. And sometimes it's kind of like flying, learning how to change the engine of the plane while it's flying. Which is like the norm today, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, you've probably heard that a million times with all the VUCA stuff and, yeah. um, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you shared. I didn't want to interrupt the flow when you were talking. And uh, truly, those are universals of change. You mentioned a lot about North America and that part of the world and touched upon the Nordics, et cetera. And I've seen more or less exactly what you said when I was working in Denmark, of course, you know, working with the Nordic countries, so spot on. Um, because of the power distance index, it is very, very low. So it's really different in how you bring things across in terms of changes. Very different from when I work in India and worked in Southeast Asia. Oh, um, you just need to deploy a different approach to co-creation or getting by in order a mix of them and find the right balance and take it forward. Very true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, resistance to change, as I see, shows up in most of the reports that we keep seeing uh, here and there. And that's like the highest uh, rated uh, what do you call that reason for change failure, probably at least one of uh, one of the key ones. And uh, interestingly, a lot of us don't capture the data that comes with it. And we just look at it as people resistance and turn towards blaming people as resistors and whatever else. And there is a lot of actual stuff that we can benefit from that kind of resistance data as to why. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there was, I, I, I wish I could remember exactly what I saw on this, this picture. There's, um, uh, Someone I, I loosely know, I invited him to come speak at Spark. Uh, he's, he's a big uh, storyteller, Michael Margolis. Um, his book was called Get Storied. 
and it's all about using compelling storytelling uh, in change for organizations. And he had this slide. And on the left, I can't remember exactly what it was, but on the right, it's shift our thinking away from this binary thing to um, possibilities and opportunities or possibilities and something else. So instead of the, you know, looking at the reports and saying, here's the three things why change fails, let's overcome those. It's more, that's an opportunity for us. Uh-huh. If, if people are outraged over this change, which isn't hard to do nowadays, um, that's our opportunity to really do something meaningful for those, for those people or, or help them with it, not you know, wrestle them into submission, which is kind of the norm of uh, society today. Very true. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I know I could still go on with more questions and I'm just a bit sensitive that we do want to open the floor for Q&A with the, the participants we have on the call. Uh, did you have any other learnings that you wanted to show out or should we open the floor for questions? I would say open it to questions. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to ask uh, if any of you have questions. Uh, I didn't see yet anything coming on the chat. If you could just uh, probably unmute yourself or raise your hand and, you know, we'll yeah. uh, take Q&A. Hi. Uh, so at the side, so I have one question on the, the same slide which you're showing right now, right? Co-creation versus getting mine, right? Uh, when I propose some of the changes um, to senior executives, right, uh, we obviously want to get all the people involved in the change and get kind of uh, the co-creation going on. But then at times, uh, senior executives feel that if we co-create with them, it might induce a lot of discussions. And some of those traditional mindsets, when we are convincing them, we actually go into getting the buy-in from the topmost management and then get into the uh, actual change, get the team and then co-create rather than co-creating initially. Is that the right thing? Or do you think uh, before going to the top management, we should first co-create, get the stuff out and then get the buy-in from the top management? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so, so part of it is knowing what the existing cultural norms are in the organization and where this balance should sit. So if it's a, it's a very traditional um, follow the process, rules, uh, control-based culture, uh, too strong of a co-creation stance isn't likely to move anything because that's too different from what the culture expects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of it is, um, you know, if you need, as the change person, if you need to work between the top and the people affected by the change, uh, how do you match the signal between the two of them. How do we convey commander's intent from the top? So it's the the what and the why coming from the top and the when and the how coming from the people at the bottom. So here's the intention of of what it is that we want to do. People down here, go figure out how to do it. That that can be one approach. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of classic product owner scrum team. Product owner is the the why and the what, and the team is the when and the how, and the scrum master is kind of in the middle trying to facilitate that to happen. So as change people, I kind of see it as the same. Do we understand the intent of the organization, the perspective of the leaders? How does that fit with the um, the people on the teams? So where are we aligned and where are we not aligned? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks, Jason. If I can dig up this picture quickly. Uh, this was 
um, a perspective mapping exercise with uh, a larger organization where, you know, this was the, we want to accelerate agile folks and they wanted us to come in and tell them agile utopia. So I went around and gathered some insights from people on the teams. I went and jumped in some retrospectives uh, with some of the teams and pretty much what they had done with agile was a horrible experience for most people on the teams. It was kind of brought in as a stick. So to make people work harder and longer hours and uh, people in the retrospectives, I think out of the, the 50 people in total from all these meetings, uh, four wanted to try an agile project again. It was just a really bad experience, but the leaders, Oh yeah, everybody's bought in. Let's just go do it. So I brought the data to them. These are the tiny sticky notes I'm pointing at my screen. Um, these are the tiny sticky notes that were on the wall and I had them do the exact same exercise. So I asked them these questions. I think accelerating agile is a good idea. I think as a whole, our organization is taking agile seriously. And my experience with agile has been largely positive. Uh, the one, three and five represent if you completely agree, put your sticky note there. If you completely disagree, put it on the right side. If you're neutral, put it in the middle. So you can see just the orange sticky notes there. They're not even aligned. So that led to the conversation of if you guys aren't aligned, how do you expect your people to follow? Now, what can we do to reconcile that? Um, the down here were some quotes from people about a good, bad, and ugly. I said, this is raw feedback. Some of it's kind of rude, but my intention Again, always go back to the change agent because this could be perceived as a very kind of disruptive thing to do um, with leaders. I said, my intention is to try to figure out what's going on so we can move forward. And here's everything I've learned. What do you want to do about it? Um, this was safe for me because I was the external and I was partnered with an internal change person. So I, I, I kind of had safety to go in and, and, uh, present some of this negative uh, data to them. But that was the, the, the whole thing, perspective mapping. Understand where we're similar, dissimilar, aligned, not aligned, and what can we do about it? Cool. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Susan. You're welcome. Do we have anyone else wanting to get a question answered? Uh, hi, Jason. This is Arlok. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, hi. It will be great if you can share a little bit on how this framework was evolved, like how you came up with this framework, and uh, maybe a little bit of history behind this. Um, so the, uh, the telecom that I mentioned, um, that I was working in um, where we invited the corporate trainers in to do stuff. I remember it was, I still have the, the blog post is still up there. So it's, uh, um, I was sitting in, uh, like at my desk in the office, I think it was New Year's Eve day and just, you know, nothing's working. This isn't making, this isn't the progress that I think we can make here. Um, so I started wondering about, is there kind of a different way to approach this? I wrote a blog post that turned into a series of video lessons from Pearson Education. Uh, I think they're on Front Row Agile, frontrowagile.com, bought Pearson Live Lessons, um, and then started looking at a more agile way to, to look at organizational change. And then the, um, the company 
in the book was the story that wrapped itself around the ideas. So I remember when we were sitting in the meeting room with the team, uh, so there were um, two, three, four, there were five of us on the change team. Um, and when we abstracted away how we operated, it was the insights options experiments. It was, well, when you really think about what, we, what we're doing, you know, we're listening to the organization, we're listening to the people, we're, we're coming up with some, some options. And if you look at, you know, stock options, there's, there's trade-offs to be made and feasibility for what stocks you invest in and don't invest in. And we took, uh, that came from Andrew uh, Annett, uh, and the cost value uh, chart for prioritizing things. We had that on our wall where we would just quickly every week go through and decide on options that might make sense to start next week. Um, and I, I remember drawing this on the whiteboard, the, the insights options experiments uh, about how we operated. And it, a lot of the thinking came from A3 problem solving reports which was, what if we took that same idea, but we, we changed it a little bit to suit our context? And that's kind of how the, the one-page change plan from my video lessons a couple of years earlier came to be. Um, and then the lean startup thinking and the design thinking, um, having customer, bringing customer empathy in, but for change people. So uh, all the ideas came from all the, you know, the folks that are mentioned in the, the thank you part uh, of the book. And then um, as far as how it's evolved to today, it's been basically by using the same model on itself. So, you know, when the first book came out, there was no workshop, there was nothing. And we had done a, a Kickstarter campaign to fund the book, basically. And what the top level prize was you get to host the first workshop based on the book, and there wasn't one. And uh, Torsten Scheller in uh, Munich, Germany, uh, supported the book with that package. So I went over there and ran the first two workshops. And then he said, have you thought about this? And I said, Ooh, that might be a good idea too. Maybe I could try an experiment. And then I tried an experiment and then that gave me some more data. So basically followed the same pattern to evolve things to where they are today by not listening to the change management community and experts and best practices and all this, you know, why change fails and all this stuff that, people in our organizations don't care about listening to the people in the organizations what's important to them what is it that a manager sitting at his desk who's been tapped with rolling out agile what does he need i don't i don't care what some change thought leader says or needs the people that are actually impacted by it what is it that they need that's been the main source of the insight so all the tools and ideas and, and things have kind of um, spawned and evolved from there Thanks, Jason, for the really detailed uh, insight into how you came up with this plan. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. So, Jason, I have a question from Omar to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Hi, Jason. Could you please share your experience while co-creating change with the tech-savvy community of people predominantly among the CTO and engineering managers? Hmm also shed some light okay i think that's the second half of a question mm -hmm. yeah uh so there was i am um, i did a private workshop in helsinki last year sometime and it was all engineering people and from their perspective uh 
they couldn't do anything with the change until the leaders handed down a vision. So until we get a vision for whatever this transformation is, there's nothing we can do. So we started exploring um, what that meant. We worked on a couple of um, change canvases. We did a couple of other facilitated exercises and they realized at the end of it that we all kind of understand that, that the organization wants us to go in that direction and it's kind of our jobs to figure this out as we go. So we're actually going to have to invent a lot of processes for how we actually get this change to work. We're going to have to uh, work directly with our people instead of at our people. Um, so for that group, it was helping them see um, through a different lens. That, you know, I think we live in a world, if you say agile transformation, people kind of get what that means. You don't have to wait for a crafted vision statement to start working in a more collaborative way. Um, one organization, one very highly technical uh, organization that I worked on, uh, worked in, that was, you know, we were, I guess you could have called it a transformation. Um, it was basically supporting, um, it was kind of like if you've ever had a job, like an odd jobs, an odd summer job where you just go and, you know, you fix somebody's window and then you patch the driveway and you do all these things. There was no cohesive transformation, uh, even though that's what they were asking for. I went around to all these technical teams and just kind of did on demand coaching and support for them based on what it was that they needed. So um, the co-creation part is, same like what insights do i have what is it that you guys are trying to do uh what is it that you expect from me how can i help you with that how do i know when i'm out of my depth and i need to bring someone else in um but it still comes from a servant servant leadership perspective for me uh, uh, jason if i put that in one word uh, in one line does it mean uh, put others need in front and then act accordingly so that it they find it valuable in terms of change that we create? Uh, sort of. Um, I, I like the term congruence, and this comes from the Virginia Satir model, and it's we don't put the other. So in, in this model, there's, there's us, the other, and the context we work within. So we don't put the other ahead of us. We consider their needs. We consider our needs in the context we find ourselves in, and we try to balance that triangle. Sure. Um, so I... You know, I, I generally take a coaching and facilitation stance. So yes, it's about their needs, but there's stuff I need too. And I've walked away from changes when those needs aren't met. You know, you're asking me to do this. I need these three things. I, I can't be effective or do the work if I don't have these three things from you. And if Got I can't it. provide it, I go. Got it. Thanks. Helps a lot. You're welcome. You're one welcome. more question on that. Like, mm -hmm. Can you please shed some light on few considerations as a change agents that we should have for a sustainable change across the organization? Because once we leave the organization at times, we feel that the changes are not sustainable and becomes a new reinventing the wheel from beginning. Um, in some ways, that's kind of how change is always going to work. It's always going to work in waves. So for me, I like to latch on to people I call the movers. So these are the people who are passionate about changing things in an organization and try to transfer as much skill to them as possible. So when they come down the wave and things start to slide back into the old way, they're well equipped 
to start the movement again. Okay. Got it. Create some moment and then it will flow. That's what, right? Mm-hmm. And, and also help people be okay with that. I mean, that's how change works. It, sometimes it's like, you know, if anybody has ever done a renovation in their home where they've had to move a wall, you put up a temporary structure to hold your, the, the, the ceiling in place so the ceiling won't collapse. And when you finish the construction, you take that support structure away. So in change, a lot of the times, there's temporary support structures that we're putting in place that eventually come away. You know, every change has a shelf life. So when we say sustain change, uh, if we keep adding and adding and adding and never taking away, um, sometimes we just end up with too much process to, to keep following. So mm-hmm. I like to also talk about the, the waves of change. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. We still have time for one more question. And one more question from my side. Uh, at, I mean, adding to the same question, when we deal with tech savvy people, more often they are uh, uh, aligned to tools rather than sticky notes. Mm-hmm. How do we deal with them? Because sticky note evokes a different kind of behavior, but they are more aligned. Can't we just do it in a tool? And then we are mm. have yeah. to use techniques of making them combat. Uh, it, it's only going to work if one of those people uh, wants to do it. So a few things I've done, like the, the company in the book, uh, we were facilitating um, stand-ups three times a week in front of this huge wall, and we'd get 30 to 40 people for 15 minutes, three days a week. And eventually we let the, the wall of sticky notes just, we stopped updating it to see what people would do. And then after a few months, there were a bunch of managers in that room and they, uh, they were really frustrated by not knowing what was going on with all of the deliveries. This was our room. If you can see the picture on there. Um, and we, we just happened to be in the room having a meeting. And uh, one of the managers said, maybe we should start using this wall again. And we just said, that's a good idea. How can we help you? So <laughs> it has to serve a need. Another thing I like to do, which I like to do anyway, is make my own no matter what. And when people ask, I say, this is just, this is the fastest way I can make sense of all the different moving parts. And here's how it works. And eventually somebody's going to ask you, well, that's a cool idea. Could you show us how to do that? Um, It's very hard when it's forced, but yeah, the tool thing, I I get that all the time. This will never work because we invested X dollars in tool tools. The key is this doesn't replace those tools. This is a sense-making thing. This is a fast way for us to orchestrate and coordinate work. Think of an air traffic controller. It doesn't replace the radar. It doesn't replace the communication. It doesn't replace all these different things. It's something that sits on top of it that helps us make sense of our larger system and how all the pieces interconnect with each other. Right. Thanks. It helps. All right. So, of course, if we still have any questions, feel free to put them out offline. I'm happy to take them forward. So would be Jason, just 
shoot out an email and you know we can take those questions again too uh if nothing more um i think we are ready to close the show uh until uh, do you have any last uh, giveaways for our participants jason something you'd like to leave them with um i i did find that picture so i was actually i was okay. actually uh looking for it and what he said was uh, how do we shift away from um problem solution thinking to possibilities and obstacles oh, interesting okay this problem solution is binary possibility obstacles is is not binary and that's so we think, the natural tendency of our mind anyway right problem solution thinking is the first thing you come up with mm. yes we have problem a it is solved by solution b but problem a is usually a result of five obstacles which could bring 20 possibilities so let's make that little subtle shift that's fantastic i love that mm -hmm. mm. Right, cool thank you very much um, you're welcome uh, in fact, thank you all for uh, a very engaging, uh, being an engaging audience for some wonderful questions that come our way. And I'm hoping everybody has uh, uh, had some value coming out of this conversation. Uh, as Jason and Jason would like to say, I'm sure uh, I remember that quote properly. Change goes viral when people start helping each other adjust. So why not we start helping each other adjust? And if we are stuck with the change, let's help each other and uh, also as change agents and help each other come out of it and maybe we are already doing that in one silo in another organization help each other get unstuck in another organization and uh, i'll quote jason again on it change the way we think about change and that's all about lean change management so cool thank you again jason uh, really appreciate mm -hmm. your time and uh, Thank you all participants once again. Uh, we will release a video out of this uh, soon in the next two days. So if you would like to share it with people around in your organizations, feel free to. It's a free video and we recommend you do share it. And if any questions do come back to us, you can follow all our other podcasts on perspectivesofchange.com. Uh, until we meet next time, we should be up again with another esteemed guest on the 13th of March. Uh, I'm not going to reveal the guest yet. We do have, uh, let's just say we do have the person confirmed, but we will, we'll make an announcement and we'd like you to watch our space. Uh, see you until then. Thank you. <laughs>